Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, if you'll turn to Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, thanks. We have plenty of extras. We'll be glad to give you one. I want to welcome those of you who are visiting. I did not grow up in a church where they read from the Bible, so if this is your first time here, it might be different for you, but we really encourage you to at least explore the possibility that the Bible is God's Word as it claims to be and that it breathes life and it changes us. You know what dawned on me? God does not play Marco Polo. See, in Marco Polo, you trick people. Over here, when I'm really over here. In fact, when God created the world, he knew that in his providence, Adam and Eve would sin and that he would expel them and he would withdraw his personal presence because we'd be consumed. But the Bible says in the book of Acts that he placed us upon the earth that we might seek him if perhaps we should find him. You know, I thought about that as well, and I thought about different movies, shows, cartoons, like Finding Nemo, right? Or Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? There's just this sense in which there's this, as writers call it, a quest. And when you think about it, because... God desires for people to come to know him. He didn't just sit up in heaven and say, figure it out, go find me. But instead, he chose Abraham, and he told him he would make him a great nation. And this nation that we call the Jewish people, there was a time when God determined that he would put a place on earth where you could find him. It was called Jerusalem. He picked it out, he created it, and he told his people, the nation of Israel, that you are to follow my ways and you will be a light to the nations and I will reveal through you how people can find God. And when they were doing it well, people were coming from the ends of the earth. The Queen of Sheba came a long way and when she saw the glory of the temple and of the living God, she said, the half has not been told. However, as time went on, the Jewish people began to be so disobedient to God that the very place where people would come to meet God had become what Jesus is going to call a den of robbers. So, but I want you to think big picture here. There was a time when God created a, a, a plan and he said, I want you to build a tabernacle so that I can dwell among them. And so he began to reveal himself to people. If you want to meet me, you come on my terms. God is not a Burger King God. He's a Chick-fil-A God. And what I mean by that is, Burger King religion, you have it your way. Chick-fil-A is a franchise. You do it this way. You're not going to serve burgers at Chick-fil-A. So God didn't say, hey, figure it out. He said, this is exactly how I want you to do it. Build a tabernacle. And because of my awful holiness, I want you to learn how to have a mediator, a priest who will approach me through a sacrifice of blood, and you can come and worship me by faith. By the time that Jesus came to earth, they had been established for a long time with this religion that included a temple as a place to meet God. The problem was, we're going to learn from the Gospel of Mark, that there was trouble in the temple. And so in Mark chapter 11 through chapter 13, we're going to see all about the temple. Now, we've been going through the book of Mark, and we, we learned last week that the journey that we talk about is, 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 is beginning to follow Christ. We just sang a song about running, okay? Don't know how that happened. 
Can you go back one? Let me see if we can. There we go. So, so you are on this map. You're either out here in the weeds or you're not even, you're way out there. You're out to lunch or you're on the road following Christ. There's only two options, right? So to become a Christian means to, as we left off in Mark chapter 11, it says, when Bartimaeus received, or Mark 10, he received his sight, he began following him on the road. You begin to be a Christ follower when your sins are forgiven by God's grace through faith. You turn from your sin and you trust in Christ and you experience this glorious change of heart. And then you begin to follow him by faith and it's a journey. And there are times that we wander. You need your country music, get on the road again. You need to be rebuked and corrected and called back. I do too. But what's really interesting in Mark chapter 11 through 13 is that Jesus is going to show that there's trouble in the temple because they misunderstood the temple and they needed to learn that the temple was temporary. And so Jesus is going to announce that the temple is going to be destroyed and that he's going to replace the temple. But I want you to think big picture here. Beginning in Mark chapter 11. Why do I bother? Here we go. Here we go. Beginning in Mark chapter 11, we are going to start looking at the last week of Jesus' life. We call this Passion Week. Now, I want you to think about this. Mark has 16 chapters. Beginning in chapter 11. That means that we are going to spend a third of the gospel of Mark talking about one week in the life of Jesus. The gospels are not a biography of Jesus. This is the most important week of the life of Jesus. This is the week in which the authors have chosen to focus deeply on the passion of the Christ. Now, with that in mind, a couple things that we want to note. Each author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, knew the same stuff. It wasn't like they're like, hey, I never heard of that. I didn't see that. But they chose to, to, to include or exclude or frame their, their message to get across certain points. So in the Old Testament, they had this temple, and Jesus is, Mark chapter 11, he's coming to the temple, he's coming to Jerusalem to go to the temple. Now, the temple was a wonderful place. It was a place to pray, it was a place to worship. I'm going to give you a little sense of what it looked like, okay? Just to get a framework, this was 35 acres, far bigger than we picture, right? The link where the eagles play is 15 acres, right? This was not like seven people. Millions of people came to worship from all over the world. And it wasn't just Jews. This whole area out here was called the court of the Gentiles. And, and when the Jews came to worship at the temple, it was a big deal. But the temple was a place that you could pray. It was a place that you could worship. It was a place that King David say, I want to behold the beauty of the Lord along with other followers of Christ. David would say, I was glad when they said it to me. Let us go to the house of the Lord. But what they failed to understand was that the temple was temporary. So I want to back up here and show you. We, we've begun to hear Jesus say this. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus spent three and a half years. If you have a study Bible, this isn't you know, something, oh, how does he do this? You could look these up in study Bibles. Jesus spent three and a half years doing ministry, miracles. But the last six months after being up in Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee, he begins to head to Jerusalem. 
And the gospel writers make a big deal about this. The gospel of Luke says, he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And on the way, he kept telling them, I'm going down there to die. I'm going down there to die. I'm going down there to die for the sins of the world. Last week, we saw in Jericho, blind Bartimaeus was healed and he began to follow him. This morning, we're going to pick up. Jesus is now about to go into Jerusalem. And we call this Palm Sunday. And people ask me sometimes, how come you don't preach on Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday? And I go, because I preach through the Bible. And I preach on Palm Sunday when I come to that chapter. So today I'm going to preach on Palm Sunday. I'm sorry, it's not Palm Sunday. All right? So, but a different understanding of Palm Sunday because Mark does not want to make a bunch of pomp and circumstance about palms. He has a very different thing that he wants us to teach us about Palm Sunday. So we're going to begin, and I want you to kind of get a sense of where Jesus is. So... Jesus is right now going to approach the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is bigger than the Mount where Jerusalem is. You can look down from the Mount of Olives and see the temple. The temple was huge. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And this morning we're going to read that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and he's going to prepare to go into the temple. But it's going to be very different from what we expect. So let's pick it up in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives... He sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You will say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. John Stott has a book called Between Two Worlds in which he says when you're preaching, you try to take the passage of the Bible and then bring it to its contemporary application. So suppose we were living today. This would be like Jesus saying to you, there's a Wawa up on Main Street. Go up to Wawa. There's going to be a car that's running. Get in it and drive it here. And if anyone sees you getting in that car that doesn't belong to you, of whom you have no idea whose car it is, if they say to you, what are you doing with that car? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they do it. Now look at verse 4. They went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside the street and they untied it. Now I suppose that they're like, this is terrifying. We could get beaten for this. So they're probably like trying to, there's no one looking. So they run up, hey, anybody looking? When suddenly people see them, right? They're getting in the car. Some of the bystanders, verse 5 says, what are you doing? Hey man, what are you, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus has told them. Oh, uh, um, the Lord needs it. Huh? Right? So we're going, am I missing something here? Did Jesus, you know, text them and say, hey, you know, my buddies are coming to get, like, it, it raises a lot of questions. But it says, they spoke to them just as Jesus told them and they gave them permission. The key is this. Mark is showing us Jesus is in absolute control, right? Like, that's profound. Jesus he didn't go, man, I, they're going to kill me. I have no idea what's going to happen. Even these little details. Because Jesus knew that in Zechariah chapter 9, it was prophesied that he would come into Jerusalem on a colt that no one had ever ridden because that's what kings do. That's one of the many prophecies about the coming of Christ. If you're not yet a Christian, if you're going, I don't know if I should believe the Bible, here's something to consider. There are over 300 predictions 
from the Old Testament scriptures that date hundreds of years before Christ that Jesus fulfilled to the word. In fact, a friend of my wife's read the case for Christ, if you've ever read that. And she was so stunned by all of these predictions that she, she went to a group of people, who, one of them being Jewish. She goes, did you know Jesus is the Messiah? And she begins to say, he has to be. Mathematically, how could anybody fulfill all these prophecies? And so they, they, they take the cult. Now, I had an interesting, I had this happen to me yesterday. I was at Cairns Homecoming. There were two former faculty members who are now in their 80s, upper 80s. One of them's 88. It was hot. They were out there for a long time. One of them, they came together. They're not husband and wife, but one of them lost the other one. He wandered off. I saw her distraught on a bench. She says, I haven't been able to find him for an hour. She's gassed out, right? I said, let me see if I can find him. I've known this guy 26 years. He loves books. So here he was in the bookstore with his little cane and his little bag. But by the time he came out, he could hardly move. And we were at one building, and we had a long way to go to his car. Meanwhile, there was a, a golf cart there with two students in it. I said, may I borrow your cart? The Lord has need of it. <laughs> I did. And I tossed them out without any conflict. And I picked him up. And I picked her up, and I drove from the middle of the golf cart, right? I got her like this. He's over here. And I took them back to their car, and they barely fell into their car. <laughs> if you see a car on the road somewhere, they might not have made it home, but I, I did what I could. That's a funny side of the Lord has need of it. True story, though. Always remember that everything you own, if you're a Christian, it's the Lord's. And there may come a time when the Lord's going to tap you and say, the Lord needs that. He did that to me once. My wife and I were going away for, to do some ministry, but I, I got this note that said, missionary couple needs a home to rent to take some classes at Cairn. And I looked and I'm like, that's the week we're away. And then it said, missionary couple from Mexico. And I had just gotten new hardwood floors. And I'm thinking to myself, but they don't use hardwood floors in Mexico. The children play on the dirt with rocks and sticks. They're now, again, you're like, that's politically incorrect. I know, it was stupid, right? I'm thinking, they're going to trash my house. And so I tried to figure out a reason why they could find another place. And I literally came across this passage. The Lord has need of it. And so I called him. I said, hey, would, would you, I didn't even know him. Would you like to use my house? Yeah, we'd be glad to use our house. And so ever since then, I love having dirt floors. It's great. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, no. Actually, they painted the porch, so we even got an upgrade. But just remember that. And thank God, many of you, you realize that. You give, you give, we have people giving away cars. Just don't come and ask me to get a free car. That's not what I mean by that. But God is good. But sometimes we need to remember that. But Jesus is in control. Now, they do something that we would consider weird. It says in verse 7, they brought the cult to Jesus. They put their garments on it. He sat on it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches when they, which they had cut from the fields. Now, that's weird, because we don't do that. And when you're reading the Bible, sometimes it's important to understand historical background. This was not the first time they did this. It was custom when a king came to a village. There's a story in the Old Testament of when King Jehu came to office. They threw palm branches in their clothes in the road. This was a way of making the way of the Lord welcome and open. So, so in the minds of the people, this is now King Jesus about to ride into Jerusalem. And, he, and the Gospel of Luke says they, 
believed that he was going to establish his kingdom. So, he, so he's going to ride right into here. He's going to get there. And suddenly there's going to be the kingdom is going to appear immediately. All the Romans are going to be wiped out. He's going to be king of the earth. Wasn't what they expected. So as he approaches, look at verse 9. It says, those who went before him and those who followed after him were, were crying, Hosanna, which means, oh, Lord, save. So there's not like two people. There's a big crowd. This is a parade. The big crowd in front of him, big crowd behind him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom. It's about to arrive. King Jesus is here. Hosanna in the highest, right? This is, this is, this is like, wow. And, and if we're watching TV, this is where you're watching This Is Us, and it says, and we'll be right back, right? Because you're like, don't stop. What happens, right? Talk about anticlimactic, right? The, so the, I'm going, all right, so all these people, they enter in. Are they going to march up and put him on a throne somewhere? But look what the next verse says. He entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. He looks all around, and he departs for Bethany with the 12, since it was already late. I'm like, wait, what? I want my money back. Where'd all the people go? They were all like, he's the king. He just, so apparently he comes in, looks around, and leaves right? And that's intentional. Mark, is, Mark is, 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 is framing that, okay? Now, what Mark's about to do here is say, hey, by the way, let me tell you another story. But Mark's just not randomly picking stories. What he's doing is it's a technique. It's a literary technique led by the Holy Spirit. It's called sandwiching. You tell one story, then you insert a middle story to come back to the other story to make a point. So this is, this is fascinating. I love this. So verse 12 says, and on the next day when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. So, so each night Jesus would, oops, sorry. Each night Jesus would leave Jerusalem in the temple and he would either bivouac at the Mount of Olives and camp out or he would go back to Bethany, maybe a mile away, right? So the next morning Jesus gets up, Okay. Now, again, they're like, well, did he make a Wawa run? Now, for me, it would have been a Dunkin' Donuts run. Well, not exactly, but again, something similar. Look what it says. Verse 12, the next day when they departed from Bethany, he became hungry. Jesus woke up hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. You know, it would be much like, oh, I'm sorry, I know you're going to go, is this guy a moron? Yes. Um, but anyway, so he's on his way, and he's like, I need some breakfast. He's like, I wonder if Wawa's open. So he sees a fig tree. Now, Jesus is not a moron. Back then, fig trees, when they began to bring forth tender green leaves, they did not have ripe figs on them, but they had little stubby prefigs. These would probably be mini fig newtons. You could still eat them, okay? So because this, this, is, this is fascinating. So it says, seeing at a distance, look at verse 13, a fig tree, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, you and I should be going, wait a minute, is this the same guy? I thought this guy just said, go over to that city, you'll find this, this, and this. He knows everything. Now he's going, let me go get some figs. Oh, dang, there's none on it, right? So one of the mysteries of Scripture is to read the Bible and go, Jesus was both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He was fully divine, but fully human. And sometimes 
in his humanity, he would say things like, Jesus, how could you say that? You know everything. And then it almost looks like Mark's even saying, you got to understand, Jesus doesn't understand trees. Because it says, he found no figs on it, for it's not the season for figs. Right? But the point here is, it's not the season for figs, but it was the season for mini figs. Like, Jesus wasn't that stupid. Like, <laughs> you know, I didn't even know. So, I, I like to just say, it's better to leave me alone until I get my coffee. Right? Look at Jesus. I'm like, wow. Looks like he got a little cranky. Right? Verse 14. There's no figs there. And answering, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Like he gets cross with a tree. Right? You're done. Right? Do you know there are actually people who get really mad? I mean, we're talking psychologists and important people who get mad at this. Like, does Jesus have no regard for culture? You know, tree pita people would throw fig juice on them. You know, like... He hates trees. He doesn't care about the environment. No, not at all. But notice it says his disciples were listening. So Jesus is teaching. Within earshot, he doesn't whisper it to the tree. Stupid tree, you're done, right? He wants them to hear. May no one ever eat fruit from you again because that's going to build into this story. Meanwhile, back to the temple. You're like, don't leave me hanging. What happened? Verse 15, they come to Jerusalem. We'll call it Palm Monday without the palm, okay? And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves and he wouldn't permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. Now, I learned a lot this week. I pictured when this thing came down, it was like a little bank, you know, Jesus runs in there with a whip, throws the security guards out. I was staggered to find out that Josephus said that in 68 AD, some years later, on Passover, they sacrificed 250,000 sheep in one day. Okay? So we're not talking about this little Moe and Larry operation where there's a couple sheep. So I pictured that Jesus threw everybody out. Learned this week, that was, that's insane there's no way there could be this this place could fit thousands and thousands of people so it's suggested that it was somewhere down in this area that he cleared out a small area and you're like geez why all the aggression well here's the problem god said in the old testament if you want to come and worship me you come three times a year to jerusalem and you don't burger king it you do it my way you bring a certain type of dove and a certain type of lamb and a certain type of silver coin. You take discover here, no. It needs to be a silver coin that has no Roman inscriptions on it. Well, people were coming from all over the world to worship, okay? Number one, it's very inconvenient to bring a lamb from Rome to Jerusalem. That's thousands of miles, you know? We see this now. People are like, don't worry, this is my therapy lamb. You're like, it's on a plane, right? So what they would do is they wouldn't bring the lambs with them, they would buy lambs when they got there, okay? And we get this. We go into airports and we go, hey, I need to trade dollars for euros. And we feel the same emotions that Jesus felt. Wait, what? You, you charged me how much, right? So what made Jesus mad is not that they, they were offering people a chance to buy their doves and animals here to help them. 
Not that they were offering people a chance to exchange their money to get silver coins, but they were ripping them off, made Neiman Marcus like needless markup. They were fleecing these people. Poor people couldn't get a lamb at cost, right? The, 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 the price of oil had gone up, and Jesus was angry. So he starts to throw them out and, and deflect them, and, 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 he, and he says something profound. Look what he says. He says, verse 17, he began to teach him, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Don't miss that. This ain't just Jewish headquarters. This place is for everybody in the world. And he says, and I'll tell you what makes me mad is that these people are supposed to be coming from the nations, Gentiles who are gone. I think the God of the Jews is real. And guess what? He is. And if you believe the Bible, the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament is the only God. He's the true and living God. And so Jesus was furious because these Gentiles who were coming to meet God were getting ripped off. He said, this is what my house should be, a place for the nations to meet God, but you made it a robber's den. Verse 18 says, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him. You know, he's cutting into our revenue here. But they were afraid because all the multitude was astonished. Okay, here we go. Mark's going to bring us back around, put the other piece of bread on the sandwich. Evening came, whenever it came, they go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, guess it's Tuesday now, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Like, wow. I had a tree. <laughs> My wife and I had some landscaper plant a tree. How long ago, honey? Where are you? 15 years, right? She kept saying, the tree's dead. I go, no, I don't think it's dead, right? It's still got leaves. They're like brown. She's like, it's dead. And I'm going, no, it's not dead. I finally had somebody come look at it. He goes, yeah, it's dead. So... <laughs> Because you can't always tell. This tree was like, like withered. Roots are coming out of the ground, dried up, barren, right? And Peter is stunned. He's like, wait a minute. That tree was full of green leaves yesterday. Look at it now. So he, he says to Jesus, he brings it up. And it's not like Jesus is going, well, dang, I forgot all about that. Jesus is always teaching us. He's leading us. Our circumstances have purposes. And sometimes we'll go, now I see. So look what he does with this fig tree. Rabbi, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. The first time I heard this, I didn't agree. I read in a, in a commentary, this guy said, the cursing of the fig tree was intended to demonstrate that God was terminating the temple because Christ had come and the, and the religion at the time was fruitless and barren and dried up. First time I read that, I'm nah, I don't see that. But there were a couple things that changed my mind. First of all, there was a verse in Amos that says, Ephraim has dried up and withered and borne no fruit. I'm sorry, it's Hosea 9.16. Ephraim is blighted, their root is withered, they yield no fruit. The second thing that made me think more about this is that around this time, Jesus told a parable about a fig tree. He said, one time, a guy planted a fig tree, but it didn't grow any fruit. So he figured, all right, I'll, I'll buy some turf up. And, 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 he, and he did some fertilizing, but it still didn't bear fruit. And so he was ready to cut it down after two years. But someone said to him, no, give it one more year. And if it doesn't bear fruit after three years, then you can cut it down. And I'm going, all right, I'm starting to pick up a pattern here. 
that maybe this idea of a cursed, barren, fruitless fig tree is representative of God's people and God's system that they had totally corrupted. And so Jesus is telling us, hey, there's a reason why I curse a fig tree. And then the, the thing that finally made me say, hey, listen, all right, I think I'll, I think I'd buy that, is that the first person to teach this was a guy named Victor of Antioch, a church father in the 5th century. So it wasn't like Mo and Larry's online Bible study yesterday. He goes, hey, this stands for this. So I, I think that's probably what's going on here is that this fig tree is representative of the barrenness of the temple worship system. Not because there was anything wrong with the temple, but because there was everything wrong with the people. In fact, the Bible says the name of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles. So, but here's where I think we need to think about a couple of things. Number one, we often call this the cleansing of the temple, like as though Jesus is coming in and going, let me just give it a makeover and now it'll work real well. I want to suggest that this is really the beginning of the closing of the temple, right? It's not without note that in chapter 13, after this section, verse one, they say to Jesus, look at the beautiful stones of the temple. He goes, not one stone will be left upon another. That whole thing is going to be torn down. And if you know anything about history, in 70 AD, the Romans came in and tore this bad boy stone from stone to the ground. And if you don't think that was a lot of work, some of the stones measured 45 feet, single stone, 45 feet long, 10 feet high, 12 feet wide, right? If you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem, a few of those stones are still there where Jews pray at the Wailing Wall. So Jesus is gone. This thing's like London bridges. It's coming down. But here's why. Because what Jesus is introducing us to is, I'm the temple now. I'm the way to God. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, someone greater than the temple is in your midst. So while the temple was helpful because it taught me, I can't go into the presence of God with my sin, it was temporary to teach me that now Jesus is the way to God. The veil was torn when he was crucified, and now there's a new way to God. In fact, ironically, got one more slide. This is the west side. Jesus came in from over here on the east side. The west side has a little hill right here that they call Golgotha, cranium, the place of the skull, right? Our Savior hung on that cross, and when he hung on that cross, the Bible says, the veil in there was torn when he died, and he opened up a new and living way to come to God. And so there's something delightful. We live at a time where people are like, but I love ceremony and liturgy. I want candles and lights. And boy, wouldn't it be cool we could all get 3D virtual glasses and I could put them all on you and go, wow, I'm getting my worship on. And I'm going, I got a better idea. Read your Bible and look right there and find that he is our place. He is our temple. He is our tabernacle. And here's a couple things I like about that. In the Old Testament, God said, you'll be a light to the nations and they'll come to you. Now Jesus says, we're going to go to all the nations. You know something that's really striking about this whole deal is that there was found an extra biblical psalm called the Psalm of Solomon. And guess what it said? O Lord, come and drive out the nations. 
And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. I'm going to come and I'm going to bring in the nations. See, Christianity was not exclusivity to the holy Jews. It was all about inclusivity to repentant sinners. And by the way, even in Jesus' day, not everybody went to church. When you read the story of the tax gatherer who went to the temple, that was the first time he'd been there in a long time. But the reason he went there is because he was broken about his sin. You can march in and out of church all day long and you'll never be changed until you come to grips with your sin and that you're away from God and that you need to get right with him through Christ. So as we close this this incredible passage where Jesus closes by saying, hey, you have faith in God and you can do things. Look what he says. He says, Peter's like, how'd you do that? He says, if you have faith in God, you can cast a mountain to the sea. Believe in your heart. Don't doubt. Pray and ask and believe and you shall receive it. Pray in forgiveness against anyone so your father who can forgive you. I read something that's pretty cool. I never knew this. But Herod was a, a, a tremendous builder. He was famous for building South of Jerusalem, Herod built another fortress in which to fortify it, he literally had them move a small mountain, a hill of dirt, massive, took them a long time, and surround his fortress and build this new hill. So in the back of these people's minds, the idea of moving a mountain wasn't like something they never heard of. But the idea of Casting it into the sea, now that's taking it to a new level. Jesus is not giving us a ticket to name it and claim it. Just say, Jesus, please give me a million dollars. I believe it, you're going to give it to me. But he's giving us a wonderful new and living way to come to God. And as we're trying to do his will, to expect and believe that God wants to save our kids and change the world and spread the gospel and heal our marriage and set addicts free and bring depressed, broken, suicidal people to a place of healing and hope, And the church is a hospital open to any contrite sinner who wants to come to Christ. So as I thought about this passage, I thought, you know, there's some things that you and I could take away from this. And this is where I want to close. Just some thoughts about what I could take away. Number one, the Bible tells us since Jesus has now opened up a new and living way way into the heavenly tabernacle, let us draw near in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean through the veil of his flesh. And so we, as as a people of God, we don't need this building. We could be out in the field. But by faith, while I'm sitting in my basement on my little, my big bean chair that I pray in, I can draw near to God through Jesus. I don't have to go to the temple. The temple comes to me. And God is offering me this access anytime I want, day and night, three o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep, you can come right into the presence of God. And when you pray in Jesus' name, you're not using the abracadabra. If you don't say that, he doesn't hear us. You're saying, Lord, the only reason I can come to you is because of the cross. You have made a new way. I don't need a temple. I now have you. I secondly, as I think about this, I thank God for that little hill far away because it was on that hill far away that Jesus shed his precious blood so that I can get to God. But you know what's the sad thing? What happened on that cross for some of you is just on a hill far away. And unless what happened on a hill far away gets applied to your soul, you're going to go to hell far away. That's what the Bible says. God doesn't hate you. He loves you. But you must come to him through Christ. 
You must repent that you have sinned. And you must believe that Christ died and paid it all and finished it on the cross. Faith is trusting your soul to Jesus. You're latching yourself to the cross and saying, from now on, I'm forgetting religion. It's about a relationship with Christ. I believe with all my heart that Christ died and rose again. And I'm stepping out in faith. I'm getting on the road and I'm following him. Well, what will my family think? Don't worry about it. What will my friends think? Yeah, that hurts. But the most important thing is, what will Jesus think? He loves you and he's calling you. So please, if you're not sure if you're going to heaven, start with that. And if you're a Christian, rejoice that Calvary has provided free and full forgiveness. And now we, we make Jesus the object of my faith. And I'm praying, God, fulfill your will in me. Use me by faith. Grow me by faith. But I couldn't help but thinking this whole fruitfulness theme. Jesus spoke often of fruit. He spoke about it corporately, like a fruitful people, a fruitful church, but he spoke about it individually. And so I'm going to be quite contrary and ask you, how does your garden grow? You're like, oh, you're being so judgmental. Why are you being a fruit inspector? Because Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. And there are a whole lot of people who think that because they raised their hand and said, hickory dickory dock, mouse right up the clock, Jesus come into my heart, never to depart. That's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to have your heart changed by God, to, to be willing to follow him and to trust him. And if that has happened in your life, you should expect to begin to see some fruit. What does that look like? Well, the first place... I expect to see fruit is in a person's attitude and relationship with sin. The Bible says no one who has been born from God will continually and habitually practice a life of sin. They can't because God's seed abides in him. If you are a Christian, God has begun to bring forth the fruit of a change in your relationship towards sin. Now hear me carefully. I'm not saying here if you're a Christian, you don't sin. But if you say you're a Christian and you sin as comfortably as you did before you're a Christian, as you, if you sin as casually and continually as you did before you were a Christian, if you're fine just living in sin, fornicating, lying, swearing, getting drunk, just doing it your way, you need to check your heart because the Bible says this. It says in 2 Peter, now that you have like precious faith, begin to add to your faith, knowledge, perseverance, kindness, moral excellence, brotherly love. And this is what it says. If you don't have any of these things, you're either blind and unfruitful. So this morning, I want to challenge you. You can't go home and make more fruit. Like, I want to make fruit, right? But if the Lord is finding you out and you're going, I don't have any fruit in my life. I don't read my Bible, I don't pray, I don't care about God, I don't go to church, I don't think about his will, I don't struggle with sin, and I don't really like Christians, then I would encourage you not to consider yourself certainly to be a Christian. I'm not telling you you're not a Christian, but the Bible says examine yourself. Well, what's the solution? Try harder? No, the solution is surrender and trust and begin to obey. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
you'll bear much fruit. You say, oh, pastor, I haven't led anybody to Christ. Don't worry about that. How about this? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Any of that going on during the week in your home? Right? Those are the things, the fruit of Christian character where you go, hey, I'm, I'm not smoking weed anymore. I'm not going to spend nine hours a day on Facebook wasting my life on social media hoping that I get liked or just making sports my idol all week long. I'm going to begin to turn to the Lord. Instead of spending evenings in the bars, hey, maybe I'm going to start going to Bible study, right? I'm going to be awakened and I'm going to get on the road and I'm going to say, hey, Jesus, if you cared enough to die on the cross for me, then I want to wake up and begin to follow you by faith. So ask God, pray for me. I want to be fruitful. I beg the Lord daily. I say, God, let me see souls saved. Let me see lives changed. I want to bear fruit, not so a testimony so you could praise me. Jesus said, by this is the Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be his disciples. So then pray for you. Pray for your family, and pray for our church. Pray for your kids. Oh, God. I don't care if Billy's the president of the youth group, but let him bring forth the fruit of a changed heart. Did you ever notice this? We'll never be able to make fruit. You can't manufacture fruit. That's why it's called fruit. There's a miraculous way that God has a part in it. So we're not going to go out and staple apples on our heads and fake fruit. It's simple surrender to Christ and say, God, change me. Show me how to trust you. Show me, heal me. I can't stand that person, but you can teach me how to love them. I don't have any impulse control, but the Holy Spirit can bear fruit in me, and we can disciple one another. Our mission is to make disciples, changing, growing, not perfect. But lastly, I love this. In the Old Testament, you had to go to the nations, right? I mean, the nations had to come to the temple. Listen, this crossed my mind. Now we take the temple to the nations. We do door-to-door church. You know why? Because you don't have to bring people into this building to bring them to Christ. Because you're taking Christ to them. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And your neighbors, your friends, and your family can learn to worship through you because they're seeing Christ in you. And that's awesome. And so we partner with Syria. We pray for Syria. We pray for the nations. And I love the fact that God is touching people in our fellowship and they're going, I'm going to the nations. I have a, somebody prayed just this morning, God, reach people that don't even have a Bible. When you see what God's doing in the Middle East and all over the world, it awakens us. Ask Dave Livingston to, to get you on his um, email chain of what God's doing through Campus Crusade and the Jesus film all over the world. It's so exciting. Jesus has is, is, is done a great paradigm shift in the Old Testament. Come nations and see Jesus. Now he says, Go into all the nations and bring Jesus to them. Isn't it a joy when you give to your church, when you pray for your church, when you surrender to Christ? Each one of us has a chance to reach the nations with the gospel. What would be worse than Jesus walking into this church and turning around and saying, I see no fruit. But as the author of Hebrews says, I'm convinced of better things for us because God is gracious. And as we pray and as we seek him, 
Let's ask God to make our church a fruitful church. Not so we can start a TV show and say how to be like us, but for the glory of Jesus. Because he died, may he use us to reach many people for Christ. Father, thank you. It's a joy to read the Bible. It's a privilege to study the scriptures. Thank you for the temple and the tabernacle and the teaching that we've learned from it. But help us to move on from a temple and a tabernacle to the true and living way, Christ. We love you, Lord, and we pray that unlike this barren fig tree, that through prayer and surrender and humility and the Holy Spirit's power, individually, corporately, in marriages and parenting, in our small groups and studies, we will bear much fruit. And that fruit will remain and that Jesus will be glorified. Thank you that you brought the nations to us. Help us to be conscious as we pray for the nations to be reached with the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.